Yeah, because otherwise the question of God Almighty is indifferent to me. It's like, I mean, I understand God. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. But what's in it for me, God? Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great, Nick. Great. Well, we all felt the need to start off this podcast by noting the sudden and tragic passing of Thomas McKenzie, an ACNA minister and rector of the Anglican Church of the Redeemer in Nashville, Tennessee. He died along with his daughter in a car accident earlier this week. His book, The Anglican Way, was the path by which many in my own church, and I'm sure across the province, came to find Anglicanism as a church home after having left some other denomination. We pray for his wife, family, and church, and rejoice that he is even now in the arms of his Savior. You guys have any thoughts? Uh, may he rest in peace and be yeah. with that family. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. Mm. Uh, he and I didn't get along on very various issues. I mean, I've never met him personally, but we didn't get along on um, various theological questions, and in particular having to do with different sides of the justice debate. Um, but by all accounts, everything I've read from people who are um, mourning his death, that he was a really good pastor, he cared for people in his congregation, um, and they loved him, and he was uh, he helped them to know Jesus better. And mm. and so it's a you know, setting all of the debates we have aside. It's a, it's a terrible thing to lose a minister of the gospel. Amen. Amen. We'll pray for his wife and his surviving daughter. Um, and trust that the church will surround them. Uh, during this time as as it has uh, for millennia. And um, yeah, our prayers are with them all. Yeah. Amen. Well, we did want to have a regular show this week. There are a couple things that have been going around social media recently that we wanted to talk about. Some old heresies rearing their ugly heads again. And um, one of them was, I think, prompted, although there are many examples of this, prompted by an article by a Paul Axton on a website called Forging Plowshares entitled The Real Tragedy of Augustinian Original Sin. And the first <laughs> sentence, the first sentence of this article really tells you what it's about. Here's their first, here's Paul Axton's first sentence. The mistranslation of Romans 5.12 in the Latin Vulgate obscures, or in fact makes impossible, the meaning of the Greek original but it took the theological genius of Augustine to ensure that this fundamental error would shape Western theology. Now, the fundamental error that Axton is talking about here is the belief in original sin, a topic that we discussed on this show way back in episode five. So here we are back again, 60 episodes later. Matt, I wonder if you, because you observed on Twitter that this article and the several people sharing it were engaging in a new form of the Pelagian heresy. I wonder if you would say a bit about Augustine and Pelagius, what they were arguing about, why this current iteration is similar, and what it's doing sticking around the church even today. Yeah, um, Pelagius um, was a, sadly, I guess we might call him an Anglican. He's from, he was from uh, the British Isles, we believe, a monk in the, in the British Isles. Uh, and a very strict moralist. Um, he, uh, we, we think anyway, a lot of what we're saying, we, we were kind of piecing together. Uh, but he, he um, 
he came to Rome and there he began a ministry among the dock workers um, and kind of rough and tumble crowd and was, was encouraging them to, to, to reform and be, be, behave better. Um, and it was during that time, apparently, they came into contact with some of the writings of, of Augustine. And in particular, I think he read, and this, uh, this is kind of a theory about how, how the, the controversy started. Um, he read a, one of Augustine's prayers, which is, Lord, command what thou wilt and give without command. In other words, obviously he's praying, okay, tell me what to do, but then you got to give me the grace to do it because I, I won't be able to do it. And that prayer um, outraged um, Pelagius and he uh, wrote against and spoke against the Augustinian doctrine of grace. And um, I guess I mean, I, you could boil down his teachings um, several points. I mean, he, he taught that uh, Adam was created uh, neither good nor evil. He is kind of in a state of moral equilibrium, uh, moral indifference. He could have done good or evil. He said that Adam would have died physically, whether he had sinned or not, and that death, therefore, wasn't a penalty for sin, but was right. uh, was just a, the, the part of being a creature. He said that uh, Adam's fall, Adam's sin, didn't affect his posterity. His, uh, everyone who came after him was not fallen because of his sin. Uh, he he did set a bad example for humanity, but but each and every one of us uh, is born with the same kind of moral equilibrium that he had. That you, you, we can choose to do good or choose to do evil, and the only the only thing the only effect Adam has had on us is one it's of bad, It was a bad influence. Yeah, yeah, he's, right. he's, yeah. He's garbage in, garbage out. So like things, VH1, um, Petra. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. Right. Um, um, and so he also, you know, he taught, you know, some of the arguments he, he made were, were, are pretty familiar, you know, that, that uh, when you come across a command in scripture, that implies ability. So yeah. um, if God says, you know, do this, be, be holy as I'm holy, or, or when Jesus says, um, be perfect as your heavenly father is in heaven, as your father in heaven is perfect, then, well, the commands would not be given if you didn't have the power to carry it out. So, so uh, you, otherwise you're, you're kind of uh, condemning or critiquing or uh, asserting that God is, is um, issuing these commands that uh, are just unfair. He's going to condemn us for not, for not being able to do what we can do. He also taught that uh, perfection in holiness, therefore, I mean, if, if all this is true, then, then the human being can, by effort, become completely free from any kind of sinful thought, word, or deed, and be in a state of complete holiness um, and uh, not need the cross for that reason. Um, so uh, all, 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 all of that together uh, really does away with not just the notion of, of the fall, that, we're, that we are all uh, both uh, inclined toward self and sin because of, of our being born in Adam, um, but also guilty of, along with Adam, of that of that sin because we were in him when he sinned. That's that's, that's in particular what that article article you read a moment ago is is talking about. Um, so the whole system uh, does away with with the necessity of of special grace for our uh, justification and sanctification, um, and does away with the notion of, of course, the original sin. Now bring it into the modern time for us, because it's much of what you've said. I'm sure our listeners will say, sounds like ridiculous heresy that no Orthodox 
Bible reading Christian today would believe. And yet we hear these echoes of Pelagianism coming up again and again in the church. So, so what is it? How does it look today? I'll give you a great example. It looks like the, um, the Episcopal church clergy uh, looking within his heart or her heart or the Episcopal church person looking within the heart and saying, you know, I really want to be with somebody of the same sex. Um, and because I'm made in God's image, uh, therefore, uh, what I find within myself is good, um, then that means I am the way God made me. That, that's, that desire is something from God. Um, that is a reason, that, that's the kind of reasoning that you get when you do away with something like the fall. Now, of course, uh, I would not characterize the Episcopal Church person as a strict moralist like Pelagius, but, um, but doing away with, with the fall is one aspect of the one way that Pelagianism has found its way into our modern, modern discussion. Yeah, it's interesting that um, one of the uh, persistent objections to the biblical revelation of um, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ um, for sinners is the the very notion of God's wrath against sin. You know that there's a that there's a legitimate anger within God against um, sinful people, and that somehow the death of Christ actually was an appeasement of that wrath. I mean, you know, this hilasterian, hilasmos, you know, this word that's variously translated both uh, expiation and propitiation, you know, mercy seat, all these various ways connotes all of these things, that there was a expiation, you know, wrath taken and a propitiation, a wrath absolved in the death of Christ for sinners. And that seems to be always the for the modern man, for the modern human, um, the the point at which uh, the the wheels begin to come off the theological uh, cart, as it were, because uh, there's this idea that somehow life, as it is constituted, is not in and of itself worthy of uh, wrathful judgment. You know, and I think that is a that's a relatively modern idea. You know, this has spurned since the 17th, 18th, 19th century, you know, the question of theodicy, you know, the, the need for God to justify himself in light of suffering, evil and death. Whereas um, most people who have ever lived throughout human history, uh, whatever deity they conceived of, um, there was at least an, an, uh, an innate sense of um, the need for um, atonement, you know, the need for appeasement, you know, whether it was the Inca gods, you know, at the top of the volcano or the, or even the uh, Roman, Greek and Roman pantheon that were, you know, rightly displeased to, for, for whatever the case may be, that the idea of sacrifice um, in the modern world is associated with a, um, with a primitive understanding of God over against, you know, the more enlightened understanding of God, which understands us as to be sort of misguided as opposed to, um, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. And I think, you know, Pelagius was sort of the proto-modern man back in the day uh, who had an um, overinflated sense of self and considered the idea that he would have warranted the cross over and against Christ to have been to be uh, a bridge too far, you know. Um, and that was, uh, you know, it seems to me, I don't know what you think, Matt, but it seems, you know, in all of the reading I've done that, that get, that start tinkering with um, substitutionary atonement or start having this, uh, they begin to paint a picture of penal substitution and uh, the atonement in uh, very dramatic and sort of barbaric ways, um, which of course, you know, the cross is very dramatic and, and barbarous. I mean, there's no way around that, but beyond that, there's this implication that 
that we are perhaps taking the, the, the wrath and penalty of sin a little bit too seriously from, from God's perspective. And that was the error that, um, you know, that uh, Anselm, for instance, uh, perpetuated, you know, Augustine picked up over against Pelagius, um, you know, much earlier on. And, you know, that seems to be, I remember reading a book, excuse me, back in seminary called The Bloodless Atonement. And essentially the argument was, uh, Jesus died as a sort of model for the embracing love of God for the outcast or something like that. You know, that was the reason uh, for the entire atonement. And, you know, that's not entirely untrue. I mean, it does show the depth and extent of God's love for sinners and the outcast, but it is the rightly cast out. It's the rightly cut off uh, on account of sin that people are brought back into the fold through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, anyway, I don't know. Uh, I think the modern iteration of this uh, you can you can hear echoes of it, you know, dear listener, if you're in a Bible study or uh, hear a sermon or read a book or uh, run across someone who begins to talk about the pagan and, you know, pagan overtures in classical uh, sort of atonement theories. You know, these maybe that's even too sophisticated a way, but that's that's what they're pointing to is that there's this primitive understanding of God, which would necessitate blood atonement that we have now transcended and we are now enlightened to, um, to have done away with. And Pelagius was sort of at the beginning, um, you know, sort of the, the patron saint of the self-absorbed and non, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are, uh, didn't need the atonement to have been for them. It's kind of all an outgrowth of the common thoughtless phrase you hear that people are basically good. Didn't Anne just write something about this? This week, Matt, that she's she's annoyed that even in the midst of people criticizing others, the they throw out this statement that, oh, well, but all that all that aside, people are basically good. And really, it's because we want to be seen ourselves as basically good and able presented with a moral choice left or right, A or B, able to make the right choice. And that's that's a real appeal of a Pelagian worldview that you can make a choice and you could be good if you tried hard enough. That is, I mean, that, that I can see why that, uh, I can see why Pelagianism continues um, to be uh, re, re-brought up every generation. I mean, just look, anybody, each of us, right, can look inside and, and consider just our, our, our interactions within the last 24 hours. Uh, the last time someone accused you of something, the last time someone said you did this wrong, uh, or why did you say that you shouldn't have said that? My immediate, my immediate response before I say anything is is my mind rushes for an excuse. My mind rushes for some justification, some reason why I did that thing, some uh, some way to make it okay that I did that thing. Even if even if I actually not only even especially if I know that I've done wrong, my mind works ever harder to, to justify uh, what I've done. That's, that's, that's human fallen nature. That's what we do as fallen creatures. And so that's if right. we can latch onto a system, if we can latch onto a theological system that will help us do that, help us justify ourselves, that's better. Because we, we, we really want, I re, I, in my sinful self, I really want to be able to say, I'm a good person. Maybe sometimes I do bad things, but the reasons I do bad things are outside of me. That's right. um, and, and therefore, on my own, on the basis of who I am, I am acceptable to God. Uh, if I have to have 
God make me acceptable, that's a blow to my pride. That's a blow to my uh, my ego. Um, and in my fallen self, I hate that. And I, right. I, I shun it. Um, let me let me justify myself. Um, and it's Plagius' right for that. Plagius says, says have a sense of grace, not not special grace whereby God makes you righteous. He's Yeah, like a John uh, Wesley Plagius, grace. Like a, like a Wesleyan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> here, here's the Bible. Here's the law. That's the grace. You, you, if, if the grace of God is giving you a law to follow. And then, and then coming down in Jesus Christ to give you an example of following that law. So you can just do what he did. And so it's like God give you, gives you the roadmap, but you know, you are, you are able to do those things that God says to you. You know, it's really interesting, Matt. And I haven't, to be honest, in my interaction with Pelagius uh, and the Pelagian heresy is more to do with soteriology uh, with respect to Luther's um, fight with Erasmus. That's been my major engagement with it um, because, you know, Luther argues, uh, you know, Erasmus was sort of a semi-Pelagian, you know, as the old, uh, the, the, the argument was that he would, he would have, he denied that you outright could have chosen God, but he wanted to hold out you know, let's say if it was 100%, you needed 100% uh, devotion to God for salvation. He wanted to hold out like 1% for your own will. And so Luther points out, and in which I highly recommend to anyone listening uh, to, to pick up and read Tole Lege, uh, Bondage of the Will, because uh, Luther said, well, let's say, so you're telling me that 1%, I'm paraphrasing here, but the 1% of your will actually then becomes more powerful than the 99% of the prevenient grace. He didn't use that term, but, but of the, of the wooing of God. So then what becomes a hundred percent important that 1%, you know, if that's actually the only thing. And so then he said to challenged Erasmus, he's like, well, why are you stopping there? If it's 1% important, why isn't it a hundred percent? And, and sort of pointed out the logical fallacy of having it be this sort of middle supposed middle ground between our will and God's uh, sovereignty. Now, of course, as we've talked about before, that brings up as many questions as it answers. But the the what we keep coming back to, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that but these bring up Christian questions, you know, that are brought before God in prayer and devotion. And you know, a, a mentor, a theological friend of mine once told me that you know, there's some questions before God that can only really be carried in the life of a living church over a lifetime. You know, I mean, some of these are some of these are great and profound mysteries, and yet that's what's been given to us in the scriptures is this, you know, this, this election, you know, that everyone's, uh, this, uh, simply means choosing, which is what gods do, you know, gods are not in the business of having choices foisted upon them. Like they, in fact, call people out, elect and determine things, you know, the end of the famous verse, you know, of course, in Romans eight twenty eight, which everyone loves to quote, you know, God calls all, uh, calls all things good for those who love him according to his purpose, you know, because those who he has called, he is predestined, those who he's predestined, he is justified those who's justified he's glorified and those who's glorified i mean this is the you know the great roman chain that they talk about if that's never really written on a coffee mug you know um you know the people pick up in the morning that i have been called and predestined and justified and glorified you know it's always that god uh works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose which is a great verse but it is in light of the greater promise of God, which is that he, his uh, word will not return void and his promise cannot be thwarted uh, even by 1% of our will. Um, so that's one point. But Matt, you've made me think about an entirely different aspect of it, which I think is really poignant for today, because if, if our unity in Christ as Christians is not predicated upon the boasting that we have in nothing but the grace of God, as Paul says, you know, if, if it is, has something to do with whatever little aspect of myself 
is worthy and justifiable before God, well, then it's no wonder that we have a limitless options for, for what that little thing could be. You know, this is the plus in the LGBTQ plus. This is the, you know, the 50 identities in Facebook. This is the, you know, I, I and my, you know, blankness, um, my little small little gift to the Lord is what has allowed me to be uh, righteous in his sight. And that is the plank upon which I will stand and um, and then, of course, it becomes that all important aspect, which which counterintuitively, uh, particularly in the body of Christ, it begins to separate and divide as opposed to unify, you know, because actual our actual unity. I mean, if you go back and read Ephesians and uh, according to Paul is that we were all dead and now we have been made alive slow, solely by faith in Christ, like all nations, tribes, tongues. Uh, genders, whatever the case you you may want to uh, point to. And if that's not true, and Pelagius is right, well, then, of course, the fracturing, the splintering, and the the various churches of one that we see around the world is exactly what we should expect. And I think that's that's a really um, good insight, Matt, into the into the the way that this ancient heresy is playing itself out in our in our modern world. Another aspect of it is is if you if you think that the, the, the conversion is a matter of, of personal decision, the, the, the purely the decision of the will that the person can, without grace, choose both to do good and to follow Jesus. Um, that's going to affect the way you preach. That's going to affect the way you worship. And, and I think the seeker-sensitive movement is especially probably unconscious. I don't think anyone would say, hey, we're all Pelagians, but, uh, <laughs> but, but there's an unconscious there's an unconscious embrace of the idea of libertine free will within the seeker-sensitive movement. You, what right. do you do? Well, you have to get people uh, persuaded. You have to get, first, first of all, you well, bring no, them first of all, First of all, you have to get them comfortably seated. That's the first step, like the first step in an air conditioned. Well, after the uh, coffee bar in the lobby, after the coffee right. bar in the lobby. But the seats must be comfortable. <laughs> And right. um, there can't be a tie in sight or it's over, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then what do you do? You have to you have to show them how Jesus can really be um, useful, uh, relevant, someone who's helped you relevant to their relevance. Right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So if they, and if you can get because otherwise, that, maybe uh, yeah, because otherwise the question of God Almighty is indifferent to me. It's like, I mean, so I understand God. God. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. But what's in it for me, God? Excuse me. But that's maybe. really the mindset that 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 uh, is being coddled in, in, in that within that movement. Well, it's being soundly rejected, as we've seen. I mean, like you and I, we were all old enough to have been sort of wooed by it in our, you know, college age or, or mid 20s, whenever it was in, you know, late 90s was when it was kind of in its ascendancy. Brian McLaren and all these people, you know, when Rob Bell was actually a Christian, you know, these sorts of things. And, you know, the, I can look back at the time and, and being, you know, wooed by it to a certain degree, but I was, and maybe there's no surprise since we're here today talking the way we are, but, but was always struck by how incredibly superficial and horizontal it was. Because, you know, what they were offering would have been, you know, maybe if I had had a, a, some sort of significant sociological needs in my life, you know, like if I had had a terrible family or maybe I was sort of felt, felt like, you know, downtrodden or whatever the case may be, they were appealing to an incredibly horizontal 
um, aspect of what God was going to offer me. And while the whole time I was there, particularly, you know, again, it's not getting too far afield since we're approaching the 20th anniversary of it, but like after 9-11, you know, when at least for me as a young man, the first time I'd ever come into contact with any sort of, you know, which now the hackneyed phrase existential crisis, but I mean, it was a legitimate existential crisis to a certain degree, found that some of this quote unquote, seeker sensitive discussion about God was just so platitudinous and superficial and, and ultimately meaningless, it seemed. And, and I think that's where, you know, the Pelagian heresy, and I think Augustine was right to see this, um, ultimately leads is that it becomes just simply as, uh, well, Augustine would famously say, curvatus in seis, you know, it becomes a curved in on yourself. Like you begin to just wonder, you know, if my standing before God is something that I can warrant and merit and justify, well, then the whole of the Christian life and church becomes a, like a gym, you know, like a, like a mirror gym that I can just sort of watch myself grow and, and hopefully, uh, you know, climb Jacob's ladder my entire life and with commensurate blessings and, and uh, rewards. And of course, you know, the problem is, is that the bottom falls out as you, uh, you know, if it, you know, if if you believe that and you and you, you know, are taken from, uh, you know, by the Lord at seventeen, perhaps it might make sense to you. You know, everything seems uh, onward and upward. But as the, the longer you live and the more that you persist in the reality of sin, death, and the devil, then the law of sin and death will have its way. Um, and if you don't have a theology, which Augustine well saw, that is grounded in the fact that Christ alone is our saving strength, well, then um, your strength is going, you know, what is it? The arm of flesh will fail, you know, but the, 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 the strength of the Lord is, is mighty. And this is what is at stake in the question of Pelagianism and the question of original sin, for that matter. And I think that's where they're all part of a whole, because when you when your objection to original sin is that it's not fair because it constrains people to verdicts that they supposedly didn't have any um, sort of responsibility in. Well, then you've misunderstood uh, the severity of sin, the reality of sin, death, and the devil, the depth and wonder of the cross, and ultimately the hope of the gospel. I mean, that's what the, I mean, among other things <laughs> you've lost. And, um, you know, and so I'm grateful that at the very least we have, there's a lot of writing on this. You can read Augustine's writings against Pelagius, but you can also see various theologians throughout um, Christian history have dealt with either explicit Pelagianism or, you know, is, I forget who is the theologian who said that the fear, the biggest problem, was it Spurgeon who said that the biggest problem wasn't Pelagianism, but, but semi-Pelagianism, sort of a, a lukewarm Pelagianism. And that's really what you're going to find because Christians aren't going to be able to come out and say, well, I just merit my own righteousness before God. I want to ask they you are going to say, this. yeah, so we'll go ahead. Well, I want to ask you because we see this we see, as you said, sort of lukewarm versions of this cropping up even in the biblically orthodox churches that we serve. And one of the ways that I've seen it recently that I wanted to ask you guys about to help me and our listeners understand it is this distinction between sin and death. And Matt, you alluded to this earlier when you were doing your overview of Pelagius's beliefs and that that even were Adam and Eve to have not sinned, they would have still Died. And one of the things I've been seeing on social media is the implication that we're we're focused too much on sin and seeing death as punishment for sin when death itself is the real core problem. So what is the distinction that these people are trying to make? And how how is it that we can answer this with the Bible? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think Pelagius had to make that kind of point because because everyone dies, right? And, um, and but not his, everyone truly lives, Matt. <laughs> right, right. But his theology, I mean, his theology, if Braveheart. sin, uh, if, if death were the consequence of sin, within his theological construct, um, it theoretically could avoid have, death. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so he had to put death as something we all suffer regardless of sin. Um, and our day is a little bit different. I mean, I mean, um, I think a lot, of mo- a lot of things are motivating that, that kind of uh, reversal. Uh, the evolution. Yeah, but nobody mindset. our age, nobody in our modern times thinks that death can be defeated. What a silly idea that nobody has. <laughs> oh, wait, they have I mean, conferences. Right. Oh, wait, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, wait. <laughs> Ray Kurzweil just dropped in since, uh, anyway. I mean, that's, I, I, I apologize, but go ahead, Matt. Well, no, I mean, there's a lot of things driving the more, the more modern reversal, and much of it might go back to maybe an evolutionary viewpoint of how of creation, you know, how do we deal with the, with the evolutionary theory when it says, of course, death preceded humanity and death preceded, um, of course, um, the first humans. So there's, there's that aspect of it. But um, I think in this particular, the theological argument um, that you were referring to is, well, because we die, that that leaves that leads us to invest too much into this life and that's where sin comes from we 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 we, we begin idolizing life out of the fear of death and what and and these are christians who are making this argument but if if christ can let us see that there's something beyond death we can we can get beyond that but the, the reason reason we sin is because death exists death doesn't exist because of sin and so that, the cross that, 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 becomes not a propitiation for sin but a purchasing of life. That's the primary thing, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's like variations. I mean, I don't think everyone would yeah. say across doesn't have anything to do with sin. No. But um, but I think the the primary problem is death, right? And that's that's what the cross. And so that's what Jesus Jesus defeats do. death more than he pays for our sins. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's such a that's a very comfortable theology for our day. I mean, you, you can you can believe in Darwin. You can have. You, you do, God is not such a party pooper. You know, he, he kind of every party uh, needs a pooper. He, though, he really doesn't. He's not. He's not happy about sin. But but that's not really that's not really the problem. That's right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's not really. The well, problem. it's like the, the theology of the good place. Death. Um, yeah, and, but and see, for sure, this is just objectively uh, and empirically uh, <laughs> verifiably false in the fact that there are people who are twenty four uh, wearing triple masks who haven't been outside their home in the past eighteen months who supposedly ascribe to this um, kinder, gentler death theology, who are living in abject terror of um, the angel of death, you know, i.e. COVID uh, and the specter that has caused cast over our world. And I think that, you know, I've talked about this in, in a variety of contexts over the past 18 months is that if anyone thought this and there seemed to have been kind of a progressive uh, return to like the optimism of the turn of the 20th century, you know, in like 1890, 1895, you know, that we're going to, we're finally going to defeat um, all of the evils of the world. And then World War One and Two came. It's like we are almost, it seems to be addressing somewhat of that utopic vision in like the early 2000s, you know, we were getting better and things were getting happier. And if we could just, you know, um, enlighten people around the world to our, um, to the, to the way things should be, then maybe we'll get there. And then comes COVID, and, you know, the specter of a, of a faceless death that could not be avoided no matter what you did has, has 
has sent the entire world into apoplexy. And, you know, if we ever thought that people weren't afraid of dying 18 months ago, well, then that has been totally um, blown out of the water uh, now. And again, I mean, I'm not looking forward to it in any time soon uh, for the sake of my family, but we have been talking about this and are have some, as it were, resources, most notably the victory over death, the enemy that Paul mocks and actually, um, you know, calls out, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, this was a not insignificant point to Jesus's death and resurrection was the victory over death. And to minimize that and to somehow um, sideline it as an ancillary aspect, or even maybe even a a non-issue within Christian theology, it just takes you out of the realm of Christian theology. And so, you know, you can join the Buddhists if you want, where death is a, um, you know, an unnecessary, uh, sort of an inconvenience, um, but it's a necessary part of being reunited with the spirit of your ancestors, whatever the case may be. Or if you want to talk about, um, you know, sort of the evolutionary process of, of continuing on in the minds and the hearts and of that terrible poem about the butterfly wings, you know, like, don't mourn me because I'm not gone. I'm in the, I'm in the wind of a butterfly wing and the coo of a baby. And it's like, well, you might be, but I'm not because I'm going to be raised um, on the last day uh, because of the victory of Christ over this enemy and to mitigate it and to sort of minimize it is um, not only psychologically, as we know from Freud, thankfully, I mean, among other uh, psychologically, physically, sociologically, every and theologically um, impossible. It is an evisceration of the um, gospel that we get to proclaim. And so, well, help me, you know, like, help me understand what you mean when you say when you say sidelining or minimizing, because I suspect that these people would say that by our focus on sin in this life, we in fact are the ones who are minimizing the real problem, the central problem, which is. Death. So I think they would at least say that they're not minimizing it. They're bringing it back to the center where it belongs instead of sin. Right. But the question, if, if death is a, if death is not a punishment, then there's no victory over it. It's simply a uh, reality to the life that we have been now given the the resources to endure. Um, which is, which is, you know, it goes back to like the question of suffering, right? I I love this. I talk about this all the time because the Buddhist conception of life that it's suffering is very much true to, uh, lived experience. You know, their answer though is a hundred percent opposite or 180 degrees opposite of Christian reality, because they'll say that suffering is a, is a fact of human existence that has to be mitigated by detaching yourself from that which causes your desires, right? So if you have an over, like, and maybe this is a form of Buddhism, if, if your concern is preserving your life, well, then you need to let go of that uh, concern and therefore you won't be as anxious of flying, for instance, you know, or if your concern is with your, your children's well-being, well, then you need to detach yourself from this because it's the desire which is actually producing the suffering, right? Um, well, the, the Christian um, understanding with Jesus as our model guide and um, hope is exactly opposite because far from detaching himself from the cause of his suffering, he actually entered into the very cause of his suffering and then brought redemption to it, which then means by extension that our suffering while true with the Buddhists, for instance, is nevertheless a redemptive suffering as opposed to an aimless or simply unavoidable reality to the human existence. And so when we understand, like, for instance, Paul saying that we are completing the sufferings of Christ in our body for the sake of the world, you know, that as we carry 
carry around our death, the life of Christ is seen in us. That is not uh, because death is a, is a necessary aspect of this condition, but because we have the audacity to look at the enemy and say, despite the fact that you will win this side of heaven in our lives, that our, our victor has gone ahead of us and has given us the hope um, over against which we can stand even in the midst of this body of death. And I think that's where, again, it's all part of a whole, is that if sin didn't warrant a punishment that then Christ came to atone for, well, then um, his atoning death becomes just an example of the way that we are supposed to endure the same slings and arrows of life, as opposed to the anchor of the hope set before us in the midst of this, that that is not not only the way it shouldn't have been, but the way it ultimately will not be. That's what we're, we're in danger of losing uh, when we take away the atonement, when we look at Pelagius, when we look at, take away the penalty of sin, and we look at ourselves as anything other than either being born in Adam and raised to new life in Christ um, alone. And that's, that's, um, that's the, those are the stakes, as far as I see them. <laughs> we, should, we should note, yeah, no, we should note that the, the link between sin and death is not just isolated to Romans 5.12. I mean, it, it's it's yeah, shocking. Right. Right. We're not just arguing over wherever the the, the translation of. Well, you notice in the argue in the article, it was about, a, yeah, it was also a subtle dig to get into the fact that, as we know, Augustine messed everything up with respect to sex because he was such a killjoy. Because he had the audacity to consider procreation a necessary right. part of intercourse. Right. That guy. Oh boy, don't invite him to your rush party. <laughs> but but you know, that was part and parcel of the of the argument. I mean, I think the good news is, Matt, I was actually having a conversation with someone about this today at our clericus lunch with other clergy from the diocese, is that you know, the the great thing, I mean, it's it's sort of um it's I guess it's cold comfort to a certain degree, but that we've seen this before. We've endured this before, and not just in our own lives, but thankfully we have the, the, the witness down through the ages. You know, I mean, Augustine was wearing different clothes and speaking a different language, but he had insight through the scriptures into what was at stake. And thank God that he laid his life down and put, you know, stood up and defended the faith when he necessary. And in every generation, as we've said, um, this will be the temptation because it's the temptation of the sinful heart to justify itself before God. And it will be the response of the church, the, the, the redeemed on no account of their own, but for the mercies of God and his mysterious call in their lives in Christ to stand up and say, that may sound right and good to you, but that's not the gospel. And that's not the hope that we have before us. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's with some, um, it's with some, uh, I don't know, comforts the word, but, but when I read these things, when I hear these books, when I read these guys come across these quote unquote new ideas that they're sharing with the world, I mean, for the most part, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we say, well, um, let's lovingly consider, um, what's been said about this and hopefully we can, um, correct where needed and, um, and, and bring people back into, um, into, fidelity to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, that's where, you know, cause, cause I think, I mean, when you read this, your bells went off as immediately as anyone else's um, and, and rightly so, because um, what did the founder, what is that, com that um, farmer's commercial? We know a thing or two, cause we've seen a thing or two, you know, it's <laughs> like, thank God. It's like, well, that's, 
that's um, again, now that we know everything, but I have, as I have been lovingly corrected by people who have seen some of the, uh, the, the steps down the way from whatever I'd been talking about at the time. Um, so we're given the opportunity to, to look back and be grateful for those who have um, set the path before us. You think you want someone to affirm your essential goodness and to, and to tell you that you can do it because that's what, you know, our teachers and coaches have been telling us all our lives. We think we'd love to hear that from our pastors and, and the people who, who preach, preach to us. Uh, but in fact, it lays an incredible burden on you. You might, you might start off thinking, great, I can, I, now, I, now I'm in charge of my, own, uh, of my own morality and my own behavior, and I'm going I'm to be good this week. Um, but you know, uh, you know, you, you're going to know that that's something you can't do. And that, and that knowledge is going to weigh on you. Um, and it's going to become not just a burden, but a terrible burden. And so the only way out from it of that is to just, is, is to forsake, uh, yourself and any effort you make, uh, to earn your own keep in God's kingdom and trust in Jesus Christ who came to do what you can't do. Amen. A good word. Uh, it is my hope that as you have listened to this episode, you have not heard all of the uh, sp- stops and starts and frozen screens. We ha- had a couple of audiovisual complications, but we're going to do our best to edit around that stuff and make it sound good. Um, that is going to be all the time that we have this week. We do appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, I hope you'll be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon and the Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.